Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 33, Numbers chapters 31 and 32. Christian scholar named G.B. Gray calls Numbers chapter 31 the extermination of the Midianites. Now that sounds pretty harsh and direct, but in fact that is precisely what this chapter is about. Now last week we took a little quick stroll as an overview of Numbers chapter 31, and this week we're going to look at it a little closer, but I'd like to begin by addressing a concern that some dear friends of mine, and perhaps everyone who's listening as well, have with the Old Testament in general, and it is that there is a tremendous amount of killing and bloodshed, and much of it is ordered by the God of Israel upon Israel, and therefore God's enemies. Now I know of a few, I know personally, a few highly educated folks, including Jewish and Christian scholars and writers and rabbis and pastors, who forthrightly say that they cannot square the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New. A God who leads Israel and conquering nations versus a God who sacrifices himself meekly for the nations. Yet no one denies that we see both of these attributes of God in our Bible. Our problem then is not one of intelligence, it's one of faith. We want the God that our human sensibilities prefer to have instead of the one who is. So we unilaterally declare that the God of the Old Testament has morphed into the God of the New Testament. Not because that's what the Word of God says, but because we're more comfortable with it. And this tendency of Christians is really both the cause and it's the definition of idolatry. An idol is the physical image of a god that comes from the minds of men. Molded and shaped and ascribed attributes according to human philosophies and human characteristics and human desires. When we worship those attributes and characteristics instead of the God of the Holy Scriptures as He is, that's idol worship. There's no way around it. And giving it some nice Christian name doesn't make it okay. There's a number of books with Christian-sounding themes making the rounds today. I'm thinking of one very popular new book in particular that I shall not name. Because I'm not going to. <laughs> I'll offend you enough before this is over. I don't have to do that. And this book goes to great length to attempt to degrade God by finding various ways of humanizing Him. Yes, you see, to humanize God, 
is to lower and to defile his gloriousness. A human is a rather significantly lesser being than Yehovah. In fact, we're not even in the same cosmic ballpark. So to attempt to equate him with us is an insult of gargantuan proportions to his matchless divine essence. But you see, really, what this is, this this attempt to humanize God, it's only the next New Age step in returning to the old world of Gnosticism. The first step was to take humans down a notch, to dehumanize mankind so that we're more equated with animals. See, now this has been thoroughly accomplished nearly universally by demanding that Darwinian evolutionism be taught and accepted as undisputed fact. Right? The notion being that we weren't created by God, we simply evolved from animals and thus we're nothing more than another species of animal. So look at the pattern that these deceptive books try to foist upon us. God is above humans, and humans are above animals according to our holy texts, but the New Age movement makes a mockery of that by seeking to make God approximately equal to humans, and humans approximately equal to animals. And churches and pastors the world over have fallen for this deception from hell thinking it's a way for their congregations to get a warmer and fuzzier feeling about God, seeing him more as a kindly grandfather and a friend, less than the mighty creator and king who stands above all things and demands our faithfulness and obedience to him. Folks, this is only modern age idolatry. It's all it is. It's no different than molding little figurines of God or gods and then bowing down to them. It is making God in our image for our convenience. The idols and images we read about in the Bible were either people or animals. That's what they always were. All the gods were ascribed human attributes. The gods partied, drank, had sex and procreated, worried, could be killed, needed to eat food, could be tricked, and they just loved to be flattered. And if you've succumbed to this hidden New Age nonsense disguised as Christian literature, you need to think again. Put down those books and pick up your Bibles. Okay? Lay aside those novels and publications full of pithy prose and half-truths that you think will draw you closer to the Lord, when in fact it merely pulls you away by flirting with your emotions and distorting the truth. You know, so many folks do this, I think, because they think the Bible is over their heads. You can understand the Bible. 
It was made for normal, everyday humans to understand. But more than understanding the Word of God, we're to believe it and we're to follow it. And we're to take God as He is, not how we would rather He might be. So I find it amusing, if not downright mind-numbingly irrational, that the same people who despair and apologize over the slaughtering of the Midianites here in Numbers will cheer and raise their voices in song over the coming of Armageddon. And the total, grisly, merciless annihilation by our Lord and Messiah of the billions of people who formed the nations but will not submit to God. Here's the thing to understand. First, whether Torah or the Gospels, this is the same God with the same attributes demonstrating the same principles. Second, at all times in history, Yehovah has chosen moments to slay those who are not his. At times, for divine retribution. At other times, sacrificing them for the sake of those who are his. And third, the worst and most horrific slaughtering and bloodletting of his foes is yet to happen. It's not recorded in the Old Testament. It's our future. Milder forms of his wrath and divine vengeance happened soon after Adam and Eve. Then it happened on a global scale at the Great Flood. It happened during the era of the patriarchs. It happened the night of Passover in Egypt. It's happening here in numbers with the Midianites. Later on in the Bible, much God-ordained killing will happen as Israel invades Canaan. Later still as David expands his kingdom. We will eventually read of nearly a quarter million Assyrian soldiers dying overnight as they planned to overthrow the holy city of Jerusalem, all of them killed at the hand of God. We of the 20th and 21st centuries have watched as nations who sought to finally bring the Jewish people to extinction were laid low as the Lord gave might to the nations who sought to stop this. And we read in our New Testament book of Revelation as our mild and meek Savior returns as a ravenous lion and leads the armies of God sword in hand as an invincible warrior chief railing against the enemies of God in a final war to end all wars where the amount of bloodletting will be so enormous as to stagger the imagination. You know, we don't have a God who joyfully kills. We are told that it's His will that all would be saved. But He does. And He will continue to destroy human beings who He deems as wicked in order to achieve His purposes. And among those purposes is to save Israel and to protect all who are His. But here's the thing we must not lose sight of. 
The Lord always deals first with his own people. Then with the outsiders who persecute his people. In other words, the same foundational God principles that governed Israel also govern all the nations of the earth and the chief of all those principles is that all will perish for their sins if they do not accept the grace of God as an escape route. Now we've already read of thousands upon thousands of Israelites being killed by the Lord for rebelling against him. Just as we have read of thousands of Gentiles being killed by the Lord for rebelling against him. The large-scale destruction of Hebrew and Gentile sinners is not an Old Testament principle that's somehow been abandoned with the advent of Christ. God's justice did not end at the foot of the cross. Romans 2, for example, goes to great length to explain that the Lord will treat Jew and Gentile the same and subject them to the same standard both in grace and in destruction. Listen to Romans 2, 5 through 10. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek, uh, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So as pertains to today's lesson, let's recall what we just read in a couple of previous chapters. That the Hebrew men, God set apart people, accepted the offer of the Moabite and Midianite women to mix with them, to engage in immoral sex and in idolatry. See, the crime here, in the eyes of the Lord, is really adultery. The Lord God is Israel's husband, but his bride is having an affair with another god. The law says that the consequences of adultery is death. So God's justice demanded that more than 24,000 of his own people, Israelites, die of a divine plague due to their adultery with Chemosh, the god of Moab. As is the God principle, after the Lord finished dealing with his own people, he then turned to those who are not his people to deal with them in like manner. That is our context for the account of Numbers 31, the extermination of Midian. Midian is a people who are not God's people 
and who have intentionally drawn God's people away from Him. The first couple of verses of chapter 31 brought to light that indeed the war against Midian is the Lord's vengeance. It is Israel who is to carry out this vengeance on behalf of Yehovah. Therefore they are to accomplish this holy war precisely as he orders it. First, the Lord ordered that the army will not do battle using all 600,000 men of Israel. Rather, this group is only to consist of 12,000 hand-picked soldiers, 1,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Second, the Lord ordered that Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the high priest, is to be the war priest in this campaign. In every battle of ancient cultures, each side brought priests as representatives of their gods. Israel was no different. Along with these priests went various ritual objects, including shofars, for sounding the various battle instructions the way we've all seen buglers do in the movies. Phineas was not leading the Israelite army. He was basically a chaplain. He was only there to do priestly service. But it is intended that we notice that it was Phineas who went with the 12,000 because it was Phineas, if you'll recall, who speared that Midianite woman who was having sex with a Hebrew man, killing them both, and thus ending the plague that Jehovah had brought upon Israel for their adultery. So Phineas got the honor. And it's so unique with the Holy Scriptures, apart from all other ancient literature, we find no detailed description of the battle, no riveting accounts of victory snatched from the jaws of defeat, no tales of individual heroism. Verse 7 simply stated that the Israelites took the field against Midian and annihilated them. They slew every last Midianite man, period. The outcome was never in doubt. The Lord went ahead of them. It was his army. So it was a sealed victory before they ever picked up a spear or a sword or looked a Midianite opponent in the eye. See, there's a principle here that's easily enough grasped, but truly hard for us to believe and to internalize it. It is that when the Lord sends his armies into battle, it's not actually a contest with a range of possible outcomes. It's not a situation where strategies and tactics or even the size of the armies determines the result. When the Lord sends his armies into battle and they behave as he has ordered, it's really for the sake of humans to simply witness what Jehovah has already decided and for his glory to be demonstrated to both sides, the winners and the losers. By no means is it a fair fight. The other side has no opportunity to win. Let's reread a little bit of Numbers. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 31. We're going to read 
from 31.13 on to the end. Numbers chapter 31. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, we'll be starting on page 188. We'll start with verse 13. Moses, Eleazar, the priest, and all the community leaders went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the army officers, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds coming in from the battlefield. And Moses asked them, You let the women live? Why, those are the ones who, because of Bilam's advice, caused the people of Israel to rebel, breaking faith with Adonai in the pure incident. So the plague broke out among Adonai's community. Now, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who's ever slept with a man. But the young girls who've never slept with a man, keep alive for yourselves. Pitch your tents outside the camp for seven days. Whoever has killed a person or touched the corpse of someone slain, purify yourselves. On the third and seventh days, you and your captives. Also purify every garment, whether of skin or goat's hair, and everything made of wood. And Eleazar the priest said to the soldiers who had gone to the front, This is the regulation from the Torah which Adonai has ordered Moshe. Even though gold, silver, brass, iron, tin, and lead can all withstand fire, so that you are to indeed purify everything made of these materials by having them pass through fire, nevertheless, they must also be purified with the water for purification. Everything that can't withstand fire, you are to have go through the water. On the seventh day, you are to wash your clothes and you will be clean, and after that you can enter the camp. And I said to Moshe, Take all the booty, both people and animals, you, Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders of the clans and in the community, and divide the booty into two parts. Half for the experienced soldiers who went out to battle, and half for the rest of the community. And from the portion of the soldiers who went out to battle, levy a tax for Adonai, consisting of one five hundredth of the person's cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar, the Kohen, as a portion set apart for Adonai. From the half that goes to the people of Israel, you are to take one-fiftieth of the persons and of the cattle, donkeys, and sheep, that is, of all the livestock, and give that to the Levites, taking care of the tabernacle of Adonai. Moses and Eleazar the Kohen did as Adonai had ordered Moses. The booty, over and above the portion which the soldiers took, came to 675,000 sheep. 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all, consisting of the women who had never slept with a man. The half, which was the portion of the soldiers who went out to fight, numbered 337,000 sheep, of which Adonai's tribute was 675. 36,000 cattle, of which Adonai's tribute was 72. 30,500 donkeys of which Adonai's tribute was 61 and 16,000 persons, of whom Adonai's tribute was 32 persons. Moses gave the tribute set apart for Adonai to Eleazar the priest, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Now from the half that went to the people of Israel, which Moses separated from that of the men who had gone out to fight, now the community's half consisted of 337,000 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons, from the people of Israel's half, Moses took one-fiftieth of the persons and animals and gave them to the Levites, taking care of the tabernacle of Adonai, as Adonai had ordered Moses. The officers in charge of the thousands who fought, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds approached Moses and said to him, Your servants have counted all the soldiers under our command, and not one of us is missing. <laughs> 
We have brought an offering for Adonai. What every man has obtained in the way of gold jewelry, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, belts, to make atonement for ourselves before Adonai. Moses and Eleazar the Kohen accepted their gold, all the jewelry. All the gold in this gift, which the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds set apart for Adonai, weighed 420 pounds. For the soldiers had taken booty every man for himself. Moses and Eleazar the Kohen took the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a reminder of the people of Israel before Adonai. Now let me remind you of what I just told you shortly ago. Indeed, the Israelites killed every Midianite male. But it was only those Midianites who resided in the northern Transjordan region. Various Midianite tribes and clans had settlements all the way from Moab all the way down to this um, southwestern end of the Arabian Peninsula. And they were not one large unified nation or people group. So all the descendants of Midianite, of Midian rather, weren't killed. Okay. The kings of several of the tribes and city-states of these Midianites were also killed, and their names are actually listed for us. Now what's more interesting to me, though, is that Balaam, that Mesopotamian sorcerer who King Balak hired to curse Israel for him, but he didn't do it, was also put to death by the Israelites. And an earlier chapter tells us that Balaam went back home empty-handed after his encounter with Jehovah and King Balak, but obviously he came back. Big mistake. In verse 9, we're told that the women and children of Midian, along with all of their livestock, were confiscated. And the towns where the Midianites lived were burned down. Now, these practices were completely standard for that day. And allow me to comment here on something that you can get lost. It was a normal procedure to expand one's own tribe or nation by seizing the women and children, in some cases men, of a tribe or a nation that they had defeated. The Israelites did the same. In fact, we see Jacob, some 500 years before this war with Midian, he grew his clan virtually overnight when after his sons led that misguided raid of revenge on the city of Shechem and killed all the males, remember this? They took all the women and children of Shechem as slaves. Now, we don't know just how many people we're talking about here, but it would have been pretty substantial, and it would have increased the size of Jacob's family immediately. The same thing was about to happen here in Numbers 31 concerning those Midianites. So most of the time that Israel conquered some king or another, some portion of that kingdom's population wound up belonging to Israel. Therefore, Israel's size increased considerably more than it would have just by adding additional children born to Hebrew women. But notice how it also shows that a genealogical purity within Israel was practically impossible from their very inception. 
The vast majority of those conquered peoples were absorbed into Israel and in a very short time, they weren't even considered foreigners anymore. But Israelites, that's simply the way of tribal society. Now the spoils of the Midianite war, we're told, were brought back to, to Moses and Israel was encamped just a little bit east of the Jordan River, not far from Jericho. And it probably surprised the returning soldiers that Moses became irate when he saw those Midianite women in tow. Why was Moses so angry? Because these were the women who led, probably pretty easily I suspect, the Hebrew men astray. And as a result of those actions of these, these women of Midian, 24,000 Israelites were slain by Jehovah. It's also confirmed for us that it was Balaam who came up with this bright idea for these pagan women to entice the Hebrew men and thus weaken Israel. Balaam may not, may not have issued an official curse upon Israel, but he definitely cursed them by his hellish plan to infiltrate Israel with pagan women. So Moses decrees that all the virgin women are to be spared, but kept, of course, as slaves. And all women who are sexually experienced are to be executed. The reasoning is simple. Only women involved in the apostasy of the Israelites against Jehovah should die. Why should a woman, who obviously never had sexual relations with anybody, let alone a Hebrew, be killed? They had no part in persuading the Israelite men to worship Chemosh, God of Moab. The killing of the boy children is a little harder to take. Okay. But it is rather typical for the era for a couple of reasons. First, it was a male child's duty that when he grew up, he was to avenge the death of his father. A Hebrew killed every one of those boys' fathers. So to let them live meant in time they'd have to deal with them. And second, since it was the father's name that was given to the children and it was the husband's right to possess all the property of his wife, Moses didn't want any male Midianites among the mix to pollute Israel or drain wealth and land away from it. Well, we now come up with this interesting scene beginning in verse 19, whereby a purification process must take place. And back in verse 13, we're told that Moses and Eleazar, the high priest, left the camp of Israel to go out and meet and greet the returning army. This was not so much to honor the victors as it might sound to us. It was to keep defilement from entering the camp. The soldiers were now unclean. Because they had touched death. They had killed. And even if they hadn't, they had undoubtedly touched a corpse. And at the very least, stood in the middle of a field full of dead bodies. Further, the people that had been captured were unclean. They were pagans. They couldn't be allowed to just walk into the camp. So we find a standard seven-day period of cleansing and purification was ordered. The troops had to stay outside the camp and then be sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer. 
that special God-ordained concoction that was used to especially cleanse the defilement of death. And this had to be done twice. On the third day and on the seventh. And further, their clothes, their garments had to be washed and then other objects they had come into contact with, they were to be ritually cleansed. Now all of this was in accordance with the Levitical laws. See, And verse 22 begins a list of metals confiscated from Midian that must also be purified in order to be brought into the camp. All objects taken from the Midianites must be purified, but notice there is no mention at all of earthenware vessels and pots, of which there had to have been thousands, scores of thousands. This is because earthenware is porous. It can't be cleansed, so it had to be destroyed. Now the purification process for the confiscated items means passing them through fire. However, for, for items that would burn or too easily melt, like glass, they could just be purified with water. Now, this segment on the purification of various objects has since been expanded and codified by the rabbis, such that any cooking vessel must be heated until it's practically white hot to be purified. Silverware has to be scalded. Glass, which is non-porous, can generally just be soaked even in cold water. Most traditional Jewish households will follow this procedure to this day for Passover and for the Feast of Monza. Now, now that the disposition of the captives has been accomplished and the purification of people and objects is done, the all-important distribution of the spoils of war comes. Every soldier fully expected, and he was entitled to, some of the spoils, but it was up to the leaders to decide just how those spoils were going to be divided. And here's how it was to be done. The 12,000 soldiers who actually did the fighting got to keep half of all the booty. The other half was given to the remaining 3 million Israelites to divide up. Interesting, isn't it, that the soldiers got the lion's share of the spoils while the civilians received a little something, but it was orders of magnitude less than the actual combatant's reward. I say this is interesting because in our day the soldiers are typically among the poorest paid in the government and yet it is they who make the biggest sacrifice. Civilians who stay at home and in America often spend their time protesting against our soldiers who are out putting their lives on the line get the greatest benefit of the soldier's bravery while the soldier gets the least. Go figure. But as usual, in Israel, everything gained in holy war was the Lord's property. And so a prescribed portion was to go to him. Now with the establishment of the priesthood, that meant that the priests, and in some cases the common Levites, were to be the recipients of whatever was the Lord's portion. Now notice that of the half of the spoils that the soldiers received, just the soldiers received, they had to tithe, so to speak, one five hundredth of their share, a mere two-tenths of a percent. On the other hand, all the civilians of Israel had to tithe a fiftieth, two percent of what they received. 
Now, unlike what it appears to be, this isn't really so much a penalty for the civilians or reward for the soldiers as it is a well-established system based on practicality. Okay? It's well documented that a priestly order of ten Levites was established for each priest serving at the temple. This was the norm. That is, there was a ten-to-one ratio of Levites to priests. Now recall now that Levites were not all priests. Most Levites were the blue-collar workers around the temple. Only priests could sacrifice and offer rituals, but never the common Levites. So notice that the Levites as a whole got ten times as much as the priests. One-fiftieth of a tithe went to the Levites. One-five-hundredth of a tithe to the priests. Ten to one. But since there were ten times as many Levites as priests, by the time each man got his portion, in essence, every priest and every, Le- uh, uh, every, priest and every Levite got exactly the same amount. Another interesting point, I think, in God's economy, as, how, as opposed to how men think. In Christian ministry, a salary hierarchy is always established with the senior minister getting the most by far. And then each of the more junior ministers getting progressively less. Sometimes the difference isn't very big. Other times it's enormous. Okay. Perhaps that needs to be rethought in the light of this biblical principle that we just read here. Well, a long inventory of the plunder of livestock is listed and the numbers are startlingly huge. Large enough that most scholars say, ah, this isn't even possible. Now, I can't really say if that's the case or not, but I can say that of all the places where such numbers of livestock were even possible, it's right where this all took place. The Upper Transjordan is exceedingly good pasture. In fact, by next chapter, we're going to find that a couple of the twelve tribes insisted on staying there and not even going into Canaan because of that very reason. Now, as many good and selfless leaders as we all know of, there are probably at least as many out for personal fame and fortune. Here in the last seven verses of Numbers 31, we get a truly heart-tugging example of godly leadership. All of the commanders of the various levels of troops, that's what it means by those over the hundreds and those over the thousands, from the sergeants all the way up to the top man, they gave to the Lord all the gold and silver jewelry they had taken as their spoils of war. They gave it all back. When the fighting was over, they had, as a standard procedure, made a census. And they found out that miraculously not one Israelite soldier was killed or missing. So thankful were these brave military leaders in recognizing the Lord's hand upon them that they turned over their entire personal portion to the priesthood in gratitude for the lives of their men. The regular foot soldier though, was allowed to keep his entire share. As a memorial for this day, the priests took the precious metal these commanders gave 
and they formed all sorts of ritual objects for use in the tabernacle. Now I emphasize the attitude and action of the leaders of Israel because we see this growing understanding in them of what the Lord expects from them. And I have no doubt that it is at least partially as a result of a committed and faithful Israelite leadership that we will soon see Israel cross the Jordan into Canaan and then win battle after battle with very few losses and in lightning fashion. God expects a lot of his human leaders. He expects even more of the human leaders who serve him. Now, let's move on to Numbers chapter 32. We're going to read just a little bit of that tonight. We'll read about the first 15 verses and call it good. 189 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Numbers chapter 32. The descendants of Reuven, Reuben, and the descendants of Gad had vast quantities of livestock. When they saw that the land of Yasser and the land of Gilead were good for livestock, the descendants of Gad and Reuben came and spoke to Moses, Eleazar the Cohen, and the community leaders, and they said, Atarot divan Yasser nimra heshbon elatleh svam nivo and beon, the country that Adonai conquered before the community of Israel is livestock country. And your servants have livestock. If you regard us favorably, they went on, let this land be given to your servants as their possession and don't have us cross over the Jordan. Moses answered the descendants of Gad and Reuben, are your brothers to go to war while you stay here? Besides, why are you trying to discourage the people of Israel from crossing into the land that Adam and I gave them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the Eshkol Valley and saw the land, they disheartened the people of Israel so that they wouldn't enter the land that Adonai had given them. Adonai's anger blazed up on that day and he swore, none of the people age 20 or more who came out of Egypt will see the land I swore to Abraham, Itzhak, and Yaakov. Because they haven't followed me unreservedly, except Kalev, the son of Yafuni, the Kinesian, Yahashua, the son of Nun, because they have followed Adonai unreservedly. Thus, Adonai's anger blazed up against Israel, so that he made them wander here and there in the desert for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of Adonai had died out. Now you, another brood of sinners have arisen in your father's place to increase still more the fierce anger of Adonai towards Israel for if you turn away from him he will leave them in the desert again and thus you will cause the destruction of all these people let's stop there the conquest of the promised land has begun with this chapter yet Israel has yet to even enter Canaan They're still on the east side of the Jordan, the area of the Transjordan that they have just conquered. They're all in this area right now. This is not the promised land. 
So when the tribes of Reuben and Gad, who owned a great deal of livestock, actually the Hebrew word, uh, the usual word we'll find is cattle, all right, but the Hebrew word is michne, uh, which means livestock, not a huge herd of cows. They come to Moses saying that they would much prefer to stay and settle here. This land that was formerly Moab. And Moses is anything but thrilled about this. And what we see is that the leaders of Gad and Reuben apparently approach some type of leadership council with their request because Eleazar the high priest is present along with the chieftains of Israel, probably meaning the twelve tribal leaders. Moses' first response is, so you want to stay behind in a land that all the tribes work together to conquer and then sit on your hands while the other ten tribes fight for the land the Lord has set aside for Israel and do this without you. Moses is as frightened as he is angry. Not frightened of the military aspect of the situation, that is, having a little bit smaller army. Rather, it is that almost 40 years ago, some of the leadership council balked at entering Canaan, and the consequences were pretty bad. He certainly didn't want to see whatever it was that the Lord would do to Israel corporately as a punishment for even just a portion of, of, of Israel not wanting to go forward again. And so Moses reminded everybody what happened to him or her long ago in Kadesh and why it happened and that this is not something we want to repeat, guys. We'll continue this chapter next week.